Good morning, Dr. Philip George. Good morning, Belle. Good morning, JD. Morning. <laughs> now, let's get to our mental health articles. Let's get to the first one. It's all about cancer diagnosis and treatment and a lot of people who have been diagnosed with cancers. Mm. Sometimes they go through some anxiety and depression symptoms as well, right? So, yep. the question here is how can family members help cancer patient get through the disease mentally actually treatment for cancer is evolving and with early detection cancer for some is more like a chronic disease sometimes through the course of the illness and treatment it can be associated with significant emotional social occupational and financial effects cancer also adds an enormous amount of stress to a person's life but the people who have s- strong social supports that's good friends and family tend to cope much better the best support friends or relatives can give to those with cancer is to really to be there with them it is better to encourage loved ones who are ill to talk about difficult matters instead of trying to just forget about the critical situation it also takes courage on the part of the listeners to confront their own feelings when they're with their loved ones but some of the tips that i can maybe suggest is support the person with cancer as best as you can and sometimes just simply your presence and nearness are enough actually keep up relationships outside the family you know relatives and friends they're all needed in that whole support ethos uh, for recovery as well and try to continue doing the things and recreation that have been previously you know been a source of strength you know company of family member to try and do some of these things as well how about work doctor should yeah, they continue with work absolutely i mean i i think they need to actually feel a sense of purpose in their life even though they're going through a serious illness but without that sense of purpose it can actually affect them emotionally even more right okay so yeah as much as they can do it think it'd be really good to continue now speaking of the support system should the people who are in the support system they get counseling themselves to be able to support the patient throughout yeah. their cancer journey because i mean it's quite taxing for them as well right i mean imagine if a parent has to support a child yeah. through a cancer journey should the parents get counseling themselves oh absolutely uh actually studies have suggested that caregivers have a 50 to 60% risk of developing mental health issues and the most common is depression and anxiety Now that's even higher than the percentage of victims uh with cancer that develop depression and anxiety. So being a caregiver actually has a huge impact on individuals and I think they should also look at what supports they can receive. In most developed countries, um cancer is actually treated by multidisciplinary teams and in the multidisciplinary team There is a psychologist, there is a social worker, there is a psychiatrist. I mean psycho-oncology is actually a specialty that then helps to address all the issues not just with the individual himself or herself but also the family and the carers as well. Now in this next news article doctor Japan's government is actually urging their people to seek help if they are struggling to cope after the death of an actress due to suicide. Now this actress She was the best actress in Japan. Right. She just had a second child. She's beautiful and it just looked like she had everything going for her, right? Mm. But can we tell when someone is suffering in silence and how do we tell? Actually suicide has 
been on the rise, not just in Japan, but in many countries. And there is some suggestion that the pandemic and the lockdown and the effects contributing to this has actually increased uh, the risk of suicide. But this article also suggests that uh, this actress had just given birth to a second child in January. So she could have been experiencing postpartum depression. Was it mistaken for postpartum blues, which is typical? During follow-up, it's always recommended that screening is done uh, for postpartum depression because it can be as common as 20%. Uh, we typically use the Edinburgh Postpartum Depression Scale. That's a useful tool. But typically, people may not actually exhibit suicidal you know, signs or symptoms. And it really is up to people around them to notice the changes and then you know, bring them in for actually professional help as well. Okay. But like this actress... I think everyone was saying that n- there was nothing wrong yeah. with her, yeah. that nothing seemed off about her. All of a sudden, she yep. she just committed suicide. So, are there really no signs that people can uh, can can people actually just suffer in silence mm. without any signs or warnings at all? Well, actually, suicidal ideation, uh, which is also known as suicidal thoughts, is thinking about and considering or planning suicide. The range of suicidal ideation varies from fleeting thoughts to extensive thoughts to detailed planning. So most people who have suicidal thoughts most often do not go on to make suicidal attempts but they are still considered as a risk factor. We often use screening tools to help us predict suicide risk. It's a mnemonic called sad persons. So S is for the sex. So if it's a male, the risk is higher. A is for age less than 19 or more than 45. The risk is higher. Those who have underlying depression. So if she just delivered a child and she had depression, you know, that could also increase her risk. Previous attempts, that's for P, and E is for excess alcohol or substance use, uh, R for rational thinking loss, so they can't actually make judgments or decisions, S is for poor social support, and then O for organized plan, uh, N for no spouse, meaning they don't have a confident or a person with them, and S for sickness, so they have, if they have a medical problem, it increases the risk further. So if they have more than eight of these sad persons' risks, they are at high risk of uh, suicide. Now this study, doctor, actually shows that uh, vitamin B12 deficiency can actually lead to mental health problems. So Mm. how important is vitamin B12 in our diet? B12, uh, which is also called cobalmin, is an essential nutrient that has many important functions in our body. Our body actually can't make its own B12. Oh, So, yeah, you need to have enough vitamin B12 in your diet. It is important because it helps keep your nerves healthy. It supports the production of red blood cells and also of DNA. It's naturally found in animal products, including fish, meat, poultry, eggs, milk. And that's why some vegetarians may actually need supplementation. Yeah, but actually deficiency may cause tiredness, weakness, constipation, loss of appetite, weight loss, and also anemia. But it can also cause nerve problems like numbness and tingling. And it can also, in, in mental health, actually be a factor for depression, confusion, dementia, and poor memory as well. Okay, but normally we talk about food and nutrition for mm. our physical health, right? But what yeah. makes food and nutrition so important for our mental health as well? Actually, this is one area that we all 
in mental health take quite seriously, especially in Malaysia. We love our food. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk to patients about what sort of lifestyle they need to follow to help with their recovery, we especially talk to them about diets as well. So, yeah, healthy, well-balanced diet can actually help us to think clearly and feel more alert. It can also help improve our concentration and attention span. An inadequate diet can actually lead to fatigue and impaired decision-making and even slow down reaction time. In fact, a poor diet can actually aggravate and may, may even lead to stress and depression. So, for example, sugar and processed foods can actually lead to inflammation throughout the body and in the brain, and that can contribute to mood disorders. So when we're feeling depressed and stressed, it's you know important not to go out and reach out for that comfort food, yeah, and that yeah. processed yeah. food, right. and that sugary stuff. It actually makes things even worse. The other thing is we actually have a close link between our gut and our mind. There's this nerve that runs. It's one of the longest nerves in our body. It's the vagus nerve. Runs from the brain right down to you know our GI tract. And so it links our mind with our gut. So when we feel stress, we can feel, you know, that butterflies in your stomach yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, that's all related to the nerve. It's also related to actually neurochemicals that have receptors in your own stomach. So, yeah, what you eat is also going to influence your mind in some ways as well. All right. A quick one on the vitamin B12. Yeah. How much should we take, though? Is it an everyday supplement that we... So if, if you're actually having a balanced diet and it's uh, rich in all the different vitamins, there's no need for supplementation. It is only when you are not eating the the things that actually uh, have vitamin right, B right. in them. Yeah. Now, this next article speaks about wellness leaves. Now, wellness leaves, they're not the same as sick leaves. Mm. A wellness leave encourages employee to sort of focus on their health to prevent further sickness, right? right? Okay. <laughs> so why is it important for companies to allow breaks for wellness? Yeah. Actually, burnout or chronic workplace stress is a very real problem. And even more so during the recovery MCO and this whole pandemic. If the stress of the pandemic wasn't enough, most employees are finding it hard to maintain proper work-life balances because the line between their professional and personal lives continue to blur. Yeah, I remember during the MCO when I had you know, to mostly work from home except when I had to get to the hospitals, I was exercising daily. You know, and it really felt good, but that's changed now, you know, and now you're back to work <laughs> yeah. and you're fighting to find time to actually exercise. Um, so, yeah, the present overstimulation at work can result in anxiety and panic attacks, insomnia, fatigue, brain fog. And all of this is actually going to make work less efficient. So before that happens, it may be best to actually take a break. I know one of my colleagues, my one of my classmates who's working in India as a doctor says she's taken just a week off because some of her colleagues have actually contracted COVID. She's been working nonstop since March. Um, she's really had it right up to there. And she said, I can feel a breakdown actually starting. So I think companies will definitely benefit by getting their old work staff to take a break. I mean, Cisco and Google actually have provided days off to de-stress. Uh, and they name it wellness leave, you mm -hmm. know, so that it doesn't become stigmatized and taboo. So, yeah, I think we should actually consider that. Is this more important for people who are working from home to take a wellness leave or even people who are working from the office? I think it's for both. But, yeah, it's it's hard to say, okay, I'm on leave and, you know, you're back in the same home where you work Correct. from. Correct. Yes. Uh, I think 
you know, it, it's important to maybe look at an environment that also provides that opportunity. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Switching off is the important thing, you know, when, for people who work from home. Mm-hmm. Learn to be able to switch off, you know, cut off time. Don't allow it to take too much out of your whole own physical life and personal life. When you mean switch off, though, like... Like that I means don't answer calls or, or yeah. What do you do to switch yeah. off, right? Yeah, unless it's an emergency, I think you should be able to you know block and stop all calls and interactions and gadgets related to work. That means we have to have like don't check your emails. Yeah, yeah, you know. But if, if you need to still be in contact with your own social contacts and everyone else so I think it's building that balance really now our final article is about this uh, whole COVID-19 pandemic and mm. how I think the world over not only here in Malaysia but in Europe they're experiencing a second wave how can we fight this psychological fatigue of fighting this pandemic can our mental health actually handle the stress of a second wave doctor yeah, yeah I guess the coronavirus pandemic is um, affecting everyone and showing mixed signs of activity. Um, in some countries, it appears to be easing, while in others, it appears to be experiencing a resurgence. There's no certainty when the pandemic will end, but it's most likely unlikely before, you know, 2021. Typically, when we're faced with a crisis, we develop a defense, which is both physical and mental. But when the crisis is prolonged or resurfaces, we actually may develop an exhaustion. And we may have spent all our reserves trying to cope with it. We need to first identify what it is that triggers our anxieties the most. You know, for some it is the fear of contracting the disease or infecting their loved ones. For others, it could be the need to social distance. And yet for some others, it could be the loss of income or occupational status. So as we move forward, learning to manage our individual and collective mood will be crucial to actually determining how well we manage the ongoing coronavirus crisis. So really, it's about how much we have invested in our own mental health. And I think in the long run, we can actually cope if we do spend that time and effort. Because I realized, like, during the MCO, during the first time that all these SOPs were rolled out, yeah. everyone listened to it. Everyone took heed of it. Yeah. And now, people are getting a little bit more lax, I think. And if I were to see someone outside mm. um, not following SOPs, you get frustrated. Yeah. Yep. You know, yes. and sometimes you get even angry. Like, yeah. I've seen people yell at other people just, just because, you know, they're yeah. angry mm. about this. Yeah. So, how can we manage this frustration to not yeah. let it get to us the boil over right yeah. yeah well I think the first important step is to focus on ourselves and what is actually really under our control we cannot control renegade rebellious others soon and you know it may make us even more frustrated and angry which are actually all negative emotions and negative emotions actually are shown to reduce our immunity and that's going to increase our risk so yeah I think of course, that doesn't mean that we just ignore when others don't follow steps and then keep the larger population at risk. We can do our part by gentle advice okay. and then showing a good example. But beyond that, it's really a waste of your own energy and time. And we need to just, you know, follow SOPs for ourselves, physically distance ourselves and keep ourselves safe, I think. All right. It's kind of like how Liverpool think that they might actually win the title <laughs> again. 
And then of course. Like, this has nothing yeah. to do with COVID-19. <laughs> you'll always walk alone, JD. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's how we're playing it. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Philip George, for those thank insights you, into some you, of these very interesting <laughs> mental health issues. Now you can listen to our podcast on Mind Matters again on the Shock app. That's S-Y-O-K. Glory, glory, man. United. <laughs>